If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be revisiting the same passage that I preached from last week. uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, being Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had torn apart, had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described it described to them how it had happened and, the, and to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us this morning to handle your word with reverence and with awe as we learn more of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be conformed more into the image of your Son by and through the power of your Spirit at work in your Word. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, there are two things I want us to see in this passage this morning. Uh, We're picking back up. Last week we uh, made it through verse 13. This week we're picking back up in verse 14, reading through uh, from verses 14 through 20. And the first thing that I want us to see is really this first group of how people respond to this miracle of what had just taken place. The first point that I want us to see is the fear of the Decapolis. The fear of the Decapolis. Note with me in verse 14 who it was who went into the city to report what had taken place. Verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. The people who went to report what had taken place was the people who owned the swine. 
it was the herdsmen, their herdsmen, verse 14, there referring to the swan who had been drowned in the sea in the immediately preceding verse of verse 13. So here is uh, this this group of herdsmen uh, that their swine had just been drowned in the Sea of Galilee, and they run away and report it to the city. Now again, this place where they are, the the Gerasenes or Gadarenes, depending upon uh, which which translation you're reading from, the same place, was a very rural uh, country place. And so immediately these people take off running into the town to tell anybody and everybody what had just happened. And note what happens at the end of verse 14. The people came to see what it was that had happened. So what happens here in verse 14 is that these people, this large group of herdsmen, take, takes off running into the city to tell everybody that Jesus had destroyed their livelihood. That Jesus had destroyed their swine, had destroyed their herds. And this is what happens when people gossip. Rather than handling this issue by themselves, rather than dealing with this on their own, they instead run and tell others in hopes that others would handle their fight for them. That others would take on the battle for them. And that's exactly what happens at the end of verse 14. These herdsmen run off and gossip. They run off and tell what had happened. These are like tattletales. People who cannot keep to themselves what has happened. They go out and tell others what has happened. And we know that this is negative. uh, That that what they had done, what they had told the people was negative. Because immediately after the people come to this seaside, the seaside of Galilee, uh, they they are complaining about what Jesus has done. They uh, They are telling Him that essentially that He was wrong for doing this. They were, in verse 15, frightened by what had taken place. In verse 15, we're told that they're frightened. Look with me at verse 15. They, being this large group of people mentioned at the end of verse 14, came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Now, let's remember the way in which this demoniac, this demon-possessed man, was presented to us in the preceding verses. He was unclean in every possible way. He was numbered among, uh, numbered among which was that he was dwelling among the dead. He was the living among the dead. He was screaming and shrieking. He was naked in the preceding verses. He had cuts and scrapes all over his body because he had gashed himself with the stones of the tombs. He very likely still had the chains wrapped around his, his, his ankles and his wrists that people had tried to subdue him with, but to no avail. This man was presented to us in the preceding verses as frightening. And so here in verse 15, when they come and find this man clothed and in his right mind, this very man who had the legion, they became frightened. They were fearful. They were afraid. Multiple people had apparently attempted to restrain this man previously, according back in verse 4. They had given up on him. They viewed this man as a hopeless case. Yet, here they are, gathered together, all of these people who came from the very city from which he was cast out, And they see him sane in his right mind and clothed. 
looking over, they see this man whom they had grown so fearful of and who had caused their city so much trouble and concern and heartache and fear. And here he is sitting down calm, sane, and restored. They're frightened. They're frightened. Look with me at verse 15. This word that is used for clothed. That he was clothed. It is in the Greek, hematizo, which literally means uh, that, that he was wrapped in this outer garment. That all of his gashings, all of his, his, his fleshly tears had been covered up. Anything that would have previously been frightening about him had been removed from him. He was wrapped in this newness. And this is really a picture of the gospel. That when God comes and saves a sinner from our sin, He wraps us in His righteousness. He does what is called imputation. That is that He gives us His righteousness. He shares with us His cleanness, His purity, His holiness. And we are thereby wrapped in that righteousness. We are not just uh, just cleaned up. We are not just uh, turning over a new leaf. We are not just turning about face. We are being completely and totally renewed Inwardly and outwardly. Who and what we once were has been removed. And has been instead replaced with righteousness, with holiness. That Christ indwells within each and every believer. Literally, Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 27, that all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You who are in Christ are clothed with Christ. It is not just that we have accepted Jesus and that He is just an add-on to our life, but He becomes our life. We submit to His Lordship. We recognize and realize that He is who He says He is. And our entire life changes so much so that according to verse 15, it's going to be frightening to people around us. They're going to wonder what happened to so-and-so. They used to run with the pack. They used to say the things that we used to say. They used to dress the way we used to dress. They used to look a lot like us, but now they're totally different. What's going on? There is going to be a noticeable, tangible, observable change about you if you are in Christ. That's one way that we can know whether or not we are in Christ. Is if there is a change. I mean, just imagine this. The person who you had warned your kids about is now clean. The guy in town who's always causing disturbances was now the calm one of the crowd. This guy whose identity had been lost because of this demonic possession that overtook his life and who was marred by uncleanness in just about every possible way is now identified as sane and insensible. The guy who couldn't carry on a conversation because of his demonic possession is now meek and mild. The guy who was trying to destroy his own flesh with the nearby tombs by literally throwing himself upon them is now as still as the sea that Jesus had calmed in the preceding chapter. We don't have to think very hard about what this might look like. We can just look around us. Look at the person sitting in this pew next to you. Look in the mirror. And if you are in Christ, you'll see someone whose life has been changed. 
whose entire identity has been overthrown and hidden in the identity and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what takes place here. This man is clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion and they became frightened. There's a Southern Gospel song written by Bill Gaither, Thanks to Calvary, that says this. Today I went down to the place where I used to go. Today I saw the same old crowd I knew before. And when they asked me what had happened, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. And as the tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. We don't live where we used to live if we are in Christ. We don't go into the same places where we used to go. We don't say and think and act upon the same things we used to before we were in Christ. Everything should be different. You should be a new person if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been miraculously and wondrously saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your past no longer defines you. Your sinfulness no longer serves as your identity. Your stupidity and foolishness of denying Christ no longer haunts you. Your guilt and shame no longer hold you captive. If you are in Christ, it's not just, again, as though we have accepted Him. No, it is that He has accepted you. It is that He has made you new. He has saved you. He has changed you. He has done something that can never be undone and therefore never needs to be redone. God's work is a miraculous work. Spurgeon puts it like this. Now what is salvation? Some people think that it is a means of being saved from hell. That is the result of salvation. But salvation means being saved from the power of sin. And being saved from the tendency to sin. And being saved from the punishment for sin. If I could put it another way, Spurgeon is essentially telling us what I'm striving to communicate to us from this text this morning is that there is going to be real, tangible, observable, inescapably clear evidence of salvation in your life if you have been saved. Everything will be new. You won't just be cleaned up, turned around, or looking better. You will be new. New desires, new wants, new affections, new thoughts, new words. Everything from your will to your mind to your heart, all of it will be new. Has Christ done that in your life? Has God made you a new creature in Christ? Are you currently, this very moment in time, walking in that newness of life? Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Now remember that this man, this demon-possessed man, had been cast out of his city. They had previously implored this man to leave. Now they're imploring the man who delivered this man to leave. They were terrified of Jesus. 
when they saw this man in his newness, when they saw what this man had been given by grace, by uh, down in verse 19, by mercy, by something undeserved, unearned, all they felt was anger, fear, jealousy, contempt. All they wanted to do was get Jesus out of town. They were so terrified by this miraculous display of sovereign power that they wanted God to just go away. That's where these people were. Now the second thing I want us to see is the future of the demoniac. The future of this demoniac. Look with me at verse 18. As he, being Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he, being Jesus, did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This demoniac had experienced the grace of God. His life was uprooted and changed for the better. Everything about him was new and different from what it used to be. Jesus had just preached in Mark 4 about the inability of a bad tree to become a good tree. He says a good tree cannot bear bad fruit just as a bad fruit cannot bear good fruit. Jesus dug down deep into this man's heart and soul, into the very deepest recesses of his being, and tore up that old root of sinfulness and selfishness and replaced with it a seed of the gospel. Jesus gave himself to this man, clothing this man in the righteousness of Christ. This man, tormented as he was, was no longer tormented by Satan. Now he was thankful for salvation. His gratitude for Christ's work in him and for him poured out in this desire to follow him. Look what happens in verse 18. Immediately after this man is saved and and made new in Christ, he wants to follow Jesus wherever Jesus is going. He says, wherever he leads, I'm going there. Wherever he goes, I'm going there. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be around Jesus. Jesus is everything to me. It is all about Jesus. This man's life is completely overturned. This man had the right mentality. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said this of true religion. True religion in great part consists in holy affections. That is, if you want to know whether or not you are truly saved... While our works or fruits are tangible evidence of salvation, the surest sign of salvation is not to look at the fruit, but to look at the root. To look at your heart. Do I love Jesus? Do I treasure and cherish and honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I looking back constantly to that day of salvation, thankful for what God has done? Is that thankfulness and gratitude for who God is and what God does compelling me to live for Him now? In verse 18, it certainly did for this man. Everything changed, including his desires. Now this word here in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him 
is in the original language parakaleo. It consists of two root words, one being para or close, and the other being kaleo, to call out. In other words, it is a close calling. It is a close up calling out of Jesus. This is to say that the man was very likely trying to force his way into this boat. He was very likely on hands and knees at the feet of Jesus crying out, let me go with you. He was, as this word is translated in other places, literally praying that Jesus would allow him to follow him wherever he went. And now this sounds right. This sounds right on the surface. That wherever Jesus is, I want to be there. That sounds right. But one thing that this man was misunderstanding about the person and identity of Jesus is that Jesus is omnipresent. That Jesus is not in one place at one time, in one space. That He is dwelling within each and every believer. That we have Christ dwelling within us. And so, wherever this man would go, Jesus would go with him. I mean, think about the the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, and lo, I am with you always, Jesus says. Wherever we go, Jesus is there with us. We are representatives of the kingdom if we are in Christ. And so this man, again, on the surface, sounded like he was doing the right thing. Sounded like he had the right ambitions. Wherever Jesus is, I want to be there. But he didn't quite understand what had happened yet. That Jesus was dwelling within this man. So why, if this man was so earnestly praying and pleading with Jesus, that he would allow this man to follow him into wherever he would go next, why did Jesus then say no? Let me bring this a little bit closer to home. Why is it that sometimes you and I pray for certain things in life and the answer is no? Why does that happen? Why does God do that? I mean, if I, if I watch TVN for about five or ten minutes, all the so-called preachers on there are going to be telling me that God just wants to give me all the desires of my heart. Everything I want, everything I name and claim, blab and grab, God's going to give it to me. So why doesn't He? If that's true, why does He not? As He does in this passage. He does not give this man what he is praying for. Why? Now this isn't explicitly given to us in the text. But I believe, I I think, that the reason here is because of comfort. This man, remember his story. He had been cast out from his own hometown. His own hometown was fearful of him. His own hometown friends and family members had subdued him, literally shackled him in chains to the tombstones to try to subdue him and keep him away from their family. And then when they come out and see what God has done for this man in verse 15, they're just frightened of him again. They're still afraid of Him. They're still scared of Him. I think that the reason that this man does not want to go back into his hometown, but would rather go with Jesus wherever he's going next in ministry, 
is because going back into his hometown would be uncomfortable. That would be difficult. He would have, as we might say, some splaining to do. He'd have to go back and tell these people what God had done for him. He'd have to go back and prove himself that he's no longer the man that he used to be. He's no longer the terror that he used to be. That God has done something in him that he can't quite explain yet because he's just a baby Christian at this point. He's got some sanctification to go through before he's able to maybe explain exactly what took place here. But he's got some explaining to do. He's got to go back into his hometown and prove, I'm not who I used to be. Look at the fruits that I now bear. Jesus denies this man's request. Here's where I'm getting this from. In verse 19, instead giving him a different requirement. Verse 19. And he did not let him, but here's this disjunctive word that gives us the reason for which he did not allow him to go. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. This man was instructed not to follow his comfort, but to follow his convictions. Not to go where it was comfortable, but to go where he had been called and commissioned. Something may seem like the easy way out. You may think that the ultimate goal of your life is your comfort. You may suppose that safety and security are your very best friends, but in reality they may be your very worst enemy because they get in the way of your obedience to God. As I said last week, God can give you an easy life or a new life. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather walk in the newness of life than in the ease of life. I'd much rather walk in conjunction with the will of God than in what my will for my life is. Because God knows better what is good for me and what is glorifying to Him than I know. I want to follow God, not myself. Rarely, if ever, is what God leads us to do the easy path. The straight and narrow path does not also include the adjective of being the easy path. But it is the right path, nonetheless. This might mean stepping out in faith to trust God rather than trusting in your safety. It might mean following God to a faraway land. It might mean disappointing family members and friends and community members. It might mean going into dangerous and difficult circumstances. But whatever it means, here's what it most certainly means. Following God means that you are saying by and through and in your obedience to follow wherever and to do whatever the Lord leads that you value His glory more than your goals. That you would rather God be glorified than you be comfortable. We sing the song, Wherever He Leads I'll Go. Is that true? Is that true? Will you follow wherever the Lord leads? Will you go and do and be whatever the Lord leads you to go and do and be? Verse 19. 
He instructs this man to go home to his people and to report to them what God has done. To report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. What was the purpose of this man going back home? God had prepared for this man a work to do. No matter how big or small, easy or difficult, comfortable or uncomfortable, near or far that work was, for this man to do anything other than what Christ had commanded him to do would have been sin. It would have been a breach of obedience. If God has called you to serve Him in small ways and yet you go on to serve Him in large ways because you feel like the big ways of serving are better than the small ways, but God has all the time commanded you to serve Him in the small ways, no matter how big that bigger way is, if you're disobedient to how He's commanded you to serve, it's sin. It's sin. If God has called you to step out in faith and to obediently trust Him as He guides you. And yet your roots are so tied down to where you're comfortable that you're unwilling to move. You have some praying to do. Notice what this man is commanded to report. Jesus gives him his material. Just as God has given me as a preacher my material. This man was not permitted to make up his own story. He was not permitted to tell his own view of things. He had one simple task. And this simple task would permeate the rest of his days on earth. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. This is really the task of every blood-bought believer. To tell people around you what great things God has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Mercy is God's holding back of His wrath And in place of that wrath, His extension of something undeserved. I never could have earned my salvation. And so the fact that I stand before you this morning as one who has been saved and who knows of where I'm going when I die and who knows that God holds my every tomorrow, I am standing before you as a man such as that because of God's mercy. Not because of my good looks, because I don't have those. Not because of my strength. Because I don't have that. Not because of my intelligence or winsomeness or wisdom. Because I don't have that. But all because of God's wonderful mercy. I stand as a man saved because of what God has done. Not because of what I have done. It's all because of Christ. It's all because of Him. And because of that, I am to go out just like this man and tell everyone with ears to hear, look what God has done. God has made me new. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus.
This word report in verse 19 is in the active present tense. That is to say that God issued a command that did not have an expiration date on it. He did not say, go home and tell people what I've done for a couple of weeks and then let that fire burn out. He did not say, go home and tell people what God has done for you until you turn 65 or 70 and then you can retire. He gives a a present tense command that is always active. If I could put it to us like this, there is no such thing as a retirement from the Christian life. Not until we reach glory. So it doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you're immature in the faith or mature in the faith. It doesn't matter where you are in life. There's no such thing as a retirement from the ministry God has given you. Until you draw your dying breath, my hope and prayer for you and your life is that you're using that breath to give glory to God and to tell others about the glorious and wonderful salvation that He has brought to your soul. And if you're not, if you've somehow fallen under the misunderstanding that it's okay for you to retire and instead just be a pew warmer, let me encourage you this morning to reconsider that. Look with me what happens in verse 20. God commands, the man obeys. And he went away and began to proclaim to the, to the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This man acts out in obedience. The man whom no one could subdue had been subdued by Christ. His life was entirely the Lord's. His will was brought out of captivity to evil and sin and was subjugated to the will of Christ. This man's will being overhauled and overturned and made in conjunction with the will of God. He who once spent his days gashing himself with stone would now spend his days proclaiming that God had saved him from it. And it's interesting to me that this word in verse 19 is to report. It's just to go and tell. To go and tell people. To go and communicate to people. (laughs) But in verse 20, the word proclaim is something a little bit different than that. He's not just going and telling. He's going and shouting it. He's going and saying, God has saved me. He's not whispering about this. He's not ashamed of this. He's not hiding this. And what's the end result of it? Everyone. Now remember back in verse 14. People had come from the city in verse 15 and they were frightened. Now at the end of verse 20, he goes back into that very same city to those very same people and now they're amazed. That's the work of God in that community. That's the hand of God at work. So if we look around our community, And think as I'm often tempted to think. We've got drugs. We've got violence. We've got people who don't care about each other. We've got the news that I don't want to watch it for more than five minutes because it's depressing. I'm often tempted to think, if I can just be transparent. What can I do? How can I have an impact on this? This is how. Give them the gospel. 
tell them what Jesus has done, can do, is doing, and will do. And you will see the community change by and through the wonderful power of God. It's very simple what this man does. He was still an infant in Christ. And yet he was going out telling everyone. If I could just close with a simple question this morning. And then a story. Has your fire burnt out somewhere along the way? Let me tell you a story. There was a young man who grew up in church. His family loved the Lord and served the Lord with all they had. And so this young man thought that as long as he was doing whatever they were doing and looking like they were looking, then he was all right. He had it all together. But as the years rolled by, he realized that he had not experienced the saving grace of Almighty God at work in his life. He was spiritually dead. His life was broken. He thought he had it all together, but then he realized he didn't. And God saved him and eventually made that man a preacher. That's me. That's my story. As I look back over my life and realize what God has done, I understand that it's nothing but the mercy of God. It's nothing but His love, His grace, His sovereign power, overhauling any power I thought I had in my own life. And if your story is something like that, tell someone. Tell someone what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? Father, we want to follow you. Would you help us to do that? Would you make us more and more obedient to you each and every day so that you would be glorified in the life we live? Father, it is all for your glory. Help us to wake up each and every day from this day forward, realizing that and singing that as the anthem of our life. It is all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.